Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Magnified with Matt Cooper, a podcast series in which I get the opportunity to talk at greater length to people who might be guests on my radio show, The Last Word, or who might not, to talk about their lives, their interesting lives, to talk about interesting issues that are important, hopefully, to you, the listener. Today's guest on Magnified with Matt Cooper played rugby for Leinster in the very early years of the Champions Cup, when Leinster was a significantly different type of team from the one it is now. He also played 36 times for Ireland, and possibly could have played on many, many more occasions if it hadn't been for a series of injuries and occasionally getting dropped when he went out in favour. He was a controversial figure as a player, having an enormous amount of talent, with some people suggesting that he was lazy and didn't fulfil his talent fully. He's also been a controversial figure as a rugby journalist since his retirement from the game. We could have spent this magnified with Matt Cooper talking to Neil Francis about his rugby career, but I'm going to concentrate on two things. How he got into sports journalism and what he regards as his role within it, but also his experience of being cancelled. Because there have been times when Neil Francis has written things which has caused offence, and in one particular occasion last year which led to him losing his job as a writer with the Sunday Independent. He's now back with the Sunday Times, but this is part of the conversation that I had with him recently at my kitchen table. So joining Magnified with Matt Cooper is the former rugby international turned rugby writer, Neil Francis. What got you into writing? Because when I took over as the editor of the Sunday Tribune in September 1996, you were already there. And you were still playing at that stage. And I think you'd been writing quite a while. What got you into it? And what did all your colleagues make of the fact that you were still inside the tent? And as some of them would have thought, pissing on them. <laughs> um, the World Cup in 91, uh, and it kind of coincided with Paul Kimmich. Um, and he had... Uh, he'd written his book A Rough Ride and he was trying to make a name for himself and obviously doing pretty well and Vincent Brown who I met recently um, sent him off to the Irish camp it, it was kind of a long way from you know the way it's done now like you you know talk to the media guy or your PRO and, and make an appointment and then players would come along and say absolutely nothing like I often wonder like why you know you do player interviews because they're pointless this is why paul howard more or less gave up sports journalism yeah 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 and i I, i'd agree with howie like i mean it's 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 soulless kind of stuff now a lot of the time players are well within the rights like why should i empty my soul when this could come against me or it could be you know so, or they wait for a sponsor to arrange an yeah, opportunity when they yeah, do yeah. do an interview in which yeah. they may or may not say anything. So, it was like a scene from uh, the commitments, you know. Kimmage uh, was like Louis the Lips on his on his Honda 50, and he arrives. I remember seeing him and sort of saying, Oh, Chase, that's Kimmage. And so, he, he literally turned up at training and then talked to Ken Reid, who was the manager at that stage. And he said, look, uh, Vincent has sent me out here to do a player um, do a player diary. So we asked all of the guys, Des Fitzgerald, Brandon Mullen, Donald Lennon, Philip Matthews, and they also said no. You know, so he came back, you know, hangdog to sort of say, nobody, who did you ask? And they told them, and he said, no, 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 get the lunatic, get number five, he's, he's your guy. Vincent Brown had identified with you. He did. He did. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so he rang me, and uh, I just said, "Look, Paul, I, I don't really want to do it, um, but I tell you what, talk to Ken Reid, and if he says yeah, 
I'll do it, knowing that Ken would say no. And then Kimmage rang me back about half an hour later to say, you know, Reed has agreed to. I said, what? I couldn't, but then, and so I went down the corridor to Ken and he's having a coffee and I said, did you say? He said, yeah. And he, but he'll be like, you know, so we were out in Finstown House and we were going back and I said, look, what he's looking for is unfettered access to everything. Like he'll be, he won't go to any of the team meetings, but he'll be there training. He'll be in my bedroom. That's what he wants. And Ken said, yeah, I think it'd be good for you. And I said, well, it might be good for me, but it mightn't. So we did a whole, over the World Cup, we did, I don't know how many articles we did, and it was phenomenal. It was raw. It was completely irreverent. And anything I said, Kimmich put it, and, and the Blazers went, like, couldn't believe, like, hold on, you can't. Oh. Why, what sort of things were you putting into it? I just, like, a a lot of moans, a lot of what was going on with with the players. Like so, it, it was you know what we were doing, what we were getting up to, and nobody had ever had access like that before. And to say it in such a way, you know, it was. It How was, were the other players about this? Did they, they were no, they were they were kind of cool, like because they'd all buy the Tribune and they'd laugh because it was it was very very funny. It was very funny, you know, and, and just simple things like nicknames or what somebody sort of got up to, you know, and you'd never get that now. Like, I mean, so, you know, Ireland are going to New Zealand in July, you know, and you just wonder why you're sending down correspondence there because you're not just not going to get anything. They won't tell you anything about what's going on. And this was, it was cutting edge stuff and it worked really, really well. And... So, played that game against Australia, should have won, didn't, and that made it even more, you know, because we had played so well. At the last minute, our last few minutes, after Gordon Hamilton's try, and Rob Saunders not finding touch with the Mm. kick, and Michael Lina getting in with the try. I was only telling people about it recently, during the Munster-Toulouse game, because that last minute drama reminded me of being there, Ninety-one, yeah. watching on that particular game. So there was the you know okay well Ireland you know performed so well we're gonna we'll have a good championship in January February March and it was a disaster and like our training what they were trying to make us do was just a disaster everything so everybody was injured everybody was unfit and we completely yet again underperformed but did more stuff, did a championship diary with Kimmage. And um, anyway, that, and that worked very well. And that was the, um, there was all sorts of drama, intrigue, like the, uh, the Copsey punch. This is when Tony Copsey, the Welsh second row forward, Flattened you. Yeah. He knocked you out, did he? No, no. Not quite. Not quite. It was a it was a very decent punch. Uh I, I'm not sure, it was about sort of twenty minutes in the game and I'd won he was making his debut that day and I'd won five line outs in a row, including two of his, and he was gonna be earning two caps that day, his first and his last. And so there was a peel at the back of a at the back of a line out and he he couldn't jump. And I could, and I got up behind him, and I tapped the ball down. And I think Donald was coming around, coming around the side, and I kind of landed on him. But he was beaten. Like I mean, he couldn't even get off the ground. I didn't touch him, you know. So I won the the last one I had ball, and I just turned around and walked into an absolute haymaker. And um, so he knocked me down, and it really hurt. But he didn't, I, you know, with a, with a punch like that, you could have, should have broken my jaw or my cheekbone, but, but didn't. And um, anyway, I, I was kind of led off and my eye just completely closed up. I couldn't see out of it. And Fitzy said, are you all right? And I, I don't think I was concussed, but I certainly saw stars when I, when I was down. 
And uh, so Fitzy says, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm going back on to get the fecker. And uh, he said, good man, <laughs> that's exactly what Fitzy was. And I said, look. This is Kieran Fitzgerald. Kieran Fitzgerald, yeah. Time, yeah. And like, Fitzy wasn't letting me leave the field, so I, but I kind of, I knew like I was, I was kind of going back on. But it, it was kind of pathetic in the sense that, you know, so I went to the huddle and I said, lad, I can't see. You know, so there's no point in throwing any ball to me. I can't, I can't see. And anyway, in those days, you it was rare for substitutions. To be yeah, there, no it? substitutions. You know, Unless but, you were almost dead, mm. so badly injured that you couldn't play on. Which, in fairness, you probably were that badly injured that you shouldn't have played. On. I should, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have played. On. I couldn't see, and may I may have been. I don't know, but but Fred Howard, who's the ref that day, just sort of said. Don't, don't touch him. You know, I know what because like, it was ridiculous. The eye was, was you know, I couldn't see out of it. And anyway, so we lost to Wales, and it was a dreadful anticlimax. And I think that was the first game of the the season. And anyway, so Kimmage uh, comes into the dressing room like he he just, and I didn't want to talk to him. I was so pissed off. With you know, we lost to Wales. This was supposed to be our season, and and I didn't want to talk to anybody, you know. So eventually, he he got up to, to the room. We were in the Barclay Court, and um, I was there for forty minutes, and it was just great. Like you just don't, you know, any of the players who gets injured now at the moment, you just don't get any access to them, you know. So you had Andy Farrell or Stuart Lancaster, or Leo or whatever, sort of saying, oh yeah. We'll review it in the week. You know, Kimmage was straight in. What happened to you? And first-hand account of what actually happened. And, you know, even later, later that week, the following week, I think we, I don't know whether we played England or France or somewhere, I can't remember. And, you know, sort of then the, the a first-hand account of the dinner. And I was sitting beside Copsey, at the dinner, <laughs> like it's just, you know, chatting away. Uh, how are you, Tony? Yeah, I'm fine. How are you, Neil? Oh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. And, uh, like, and I've met Tony a number of times, and he's a lovely fella, and we get on very well. So I mean, I've no, I've no kind of issues. But so that's that's where it 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 happened, and then I think Paul went off to the indoor somewhere else, and Dave Hannigan. Uh, I think was the sports editor. There, there, there was a number of sports: Ger, Ger Siggins, Dave Hannigan, um, Johnny Waterson, Mark Jones, and a series of editors who were coming and going and coming and going. And so I did. I did intermittently. I did. I did a, a kind of a, a diary, and then I just said, "Actually, look, lads, just let me just play here. This is, you know." And I was out I, in '93. I was out for a good part of the season, so it wasn't going to wasn't going to work. And so then Mark Jones did the diary in uh, in South Africa, and it was okay. wasn't wasn't kind of great. And then when my career finished, I don't so know. So South Africa been the World Cup yeah, in '95. World Cup in '95. Uh, my career was kind of finished in '97, '98, and physically I was okay, but mentally I just you know, quite happy just to, and I was very busy on, on the work front and all that sort of thing. So the Tribune rang me and um, Hannigan came out and just sort of said, okay, um, we want you to write for us. And I said, okay. And it was, it was just a kind of a funny, it was the way it was, again, it was a handshake. And like when I was, you know, with the, the Sunday Times, starting with the Sunday Times back in December, January, it was a handshake. And that's the way I just loved doing, you know, we just, it was a handshake. So, and I said, okay, I'll do it on one condition. And he said, okay, what's that? And I said, that I'll write the stuff for myself. Okay. And we shook hands. No, not even a, not even a number. We hadn't agreed a fee or whatever else. And that's the way I liked it. And I said, okay. And then I remember sort of thinking, sitting down to write my first piece, and I said, oh, God, what have I 
you know, why can't I just ring one of the scribes and they can ghostwrite it for me? But anyway, so I I just started writing from then. I don't know, it's 98, 99, can't remember. I'm struggling to remember as yeah. well, and I should, yeah. given that ultimately the sports editor would have reported into me. So I must have signed off on whatever we were overpaying you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, You had a great fondness at that stage, though, for rhyming slang and things like that, didn't you? And if I remember rightly, you used to write it out, and I think it was Rachel who used to type it up for you and send yeah, it in. Yeah, that's changed now. Only very recently that's changed. Uh, with just two busy lives and I, I liked the flow of the pen so I, you'd write six or seven fool's cap Rachel would interpret my hieroglyphics and then I'd kind of edit it myself and make it flow better but it, it just it was just taking too much time so I've I'm not particularly quick and Rachel still does the um, the live matches that, and that's a it's a real skill People don't realise, you know. Oh, so what so really, it's Rachel's analysis. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, she says that. Uh, so you're in a, you're in Twickenham, you're in Stade de France, you're in the Aviva, and a match is just on. And most of the correspondents will have done a match report, but I don't, you know, sort of. You're not doing the blow by blow. Coach. No, you're not. You're you're interpreting why it happened and how it not really how it happened, why it happened, mm-hmm. and you got to c- come up with twelve hundred words in forty five minutes, pretty much immediately after the match with loud rock music and people and roaring and screaming at you. So it's a highly pressurized environment, and to be able to think quickly and get twelve hundred words in dictate them now not so you you're not reading back through it to see what you know what works so I really enjoy it um, I think I I bring far more than just rugby analysis um, you know been able to interpret a set of accounts been able to understand television rights being able to see the business, to see the politics and the intrigue, which I love, like it's just fantastic, you know, and, and you, you hear so much stuff about what's going on behind the scenes and, you know, the union, what the union interpret, you know, the way they look at things. And I don't think that, you know, there are, are a number of people who can, who can do it, but I just think I've a I have a broader canvas. Initially, how difficult did you find it to actually write potentially critically about former teammates and indeed friends? Because this is something that an awful lot of recently retired players struggle with. Yeah, yeah, um, and, and that goes for all sports. When you when you go to the dark side, and that's what the fourth estate is. You you just got to make that, and, and if you don't jump, you've no business being there. And a number of players that I played with, oh, a small amount, um, you know, would have got criticism. But that's I had made the jump, so I'm no longer a player. I'm no longer playing with these guys. And you have to make that decision. And I made that decision. And not that many. And a lot of them, a lot of them understand. And a lot of them gave me a kick for, <laughs> for giving out to them. But that's just the way it is. So any of these form players rolling off the conveyor belt uh, and, you know, vanilla expressions of how somebody played, that's either do it properly or you don't do it at all. Has it gotten easier over the years in the distance from players? That is, you're now writing about people that you may not know particularly well. Well, you'd be surprised how, how many of them sort of talk to me. You know, and, and some of them would be annoyed, you know, you, and you just sort of say, uh, you know, you, you gave a chide to me, or, you know, or you shouldn't have, that was, that was wrong. And a lot of times you don't understand what's, what's because you're, you're, you're not in a training camp, you're not in a dressing room, and you're not in a, like, there are players who might have off-field issues, you're not aware of those, you know, and it only comes out later on that, you know, 
the reason the player is struggling and, and sometimes you might have said something without realising what's going on and that they won't tell you either way and that's that's a that is an issue um, but you know you talk to sort of a player and you just you know you might have slagged them or criticised them three or four times but 60 or 70 times you might have sort of said Jesus that guy's really good they only remember the times that you yeah. said they weren't good. And it is, like, I mean, it's hard. I mean, I, I, I got a good kick in when I was a player. And, you know, some of it justified, some of it completely unjustified. And, uh, you know, you, you do, it's not a, it's not particularly nice, but it's part of the, you know, so we're amateur, semi-pro, but now you're a pro. So no, no excuses really for, you know, I think it was you who coined the phrase about Leinster at one stage, so called them ladyboys. You have a colourful phrase at times, but I think a lot of them took grave offence at that, didn't they? They did. They certainly did. That yeah. was now going back how many years ago? I don't know. I don't know. It must have been around the time, I think, maybe when Munster beat Leinster in the semi-final. No, no, it was, no, no. It was well before that. What we, we played Edinburgh in a Heineken Cup final. And or sorry, not in the final, but in a in a in a in a group stage, and Edinburgh were rubbish, but we were equally rubbish, and and we had, I think we I know we lost to Clonetley again and that sort of thing there, and you just look at the team and you just sort of saying, look, every time we get to a pitch, we kind of crumble mentally. We're not we're not kind of strong enough, you know. Where there's a um, how do we phrase this? <laughs> you know, we're not we're not tough enough mentally or masculine about how we apply ourselves. And we went into Edinburgh that night, and we had a we had a great old we had a great old night. And about so, you still playing at this time? I was playing, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And. For some reason, Edinburgh, as you probably know, is a great party town, uh, but everywhere was kind of closed at eleven o'clock, and we were looking for a, we were looking for somewhere to get some beer. And I, I won't say who was with me, but anyway, we ended up. There was a troop of Thai lady boys who were <laughs> who were putting on a show, like so. It was a kind of cabaret. So we, we said, okay, it's only a tenner in and they're serving beer. <laughs> so, so we ended up in this place and to say that there was weird and wonderful there was kind of an understatement. And we had, I don't know, we were there for a couple of hours and loads of beers and that was, we went away. But I remember sort of thinking, and it was purely self-depreciatory, you know, that we had another poor performance. We won, but, you know, and we're just, we should be doing an awful lot better. And I just turned, you know, we were, we played like lady boys. That's where, that's where it came from. And it, we were just, we were slagging each other. And, you know, and then, you know, some of the lads, where were you last night? <laughs> we were with the lady boys. And anyway, that's, that's essentially where it came from. And then years later, you know, I, I thought of, I thought of, you know, you know, the, the night out that we had and where we were, and then that's where the name came from. And it stuck for a while. It did. It did stick. Now, I haven't. Uh, I, I've had short relationships with, like, so myself and Waza not good mates we know each other, and we've had a couple of rows over the course of the years. Waza been Warren Gatland. Warren Gatland. And my, the first time I uh, met Michael Shecker was in a, the, uh, oh, what's it called? There was a sevens tournament, Melrose Sevens. And I went over with the Wolfhounds and we actually won it, which was, and it was, a, again, another crazy night, another couple of crazy nights. And we played... Um, we played in the semi-final. We played. I'll think of it now in a minute. We uh, there were Australian, Australia, the, the top 
Randwick. Randwick. Apologies, yeah. Randwick in the, in the semi-final. And Michael Checa was playing. And I'd seen the sort of quarterfinal, so we were just... We, we had been on the charge for the whole couple of weeks or days that we were there. And Carl Mullen was actually the our our manager and he he, he said, Francie, we could actually win this. Now take it seriously, young man, take it seriously. And I said, Okay. So we were in the semi finals and Randwick were just a phenomenal side. They had everybody. But Cheka was playing that day. And he looked like something out of the Jackson Five. He'd a big afro. And he was going around punching guys for fun, like and getting away with it. And uh, anyway, so we went out against Randwick, and somebody knocked on, and there was a scrum, and and I was getting up out of the scrum, and he boxes me, and then kind of shapes to to go across the pitch to to follow the play, and I <laughs> just grabbed him by the scruff of the neck, and I dropped him, and. I said, "There you go. Any more you want? Plenty. I'm, I'm here. I'm, <laughs> I'm not here to throw the ball around as well either." So he didn't, didn't say. So that was the first time I met him, and not a, not a sort of good thing. And I, I, I would have known David Knox. I played against David Knox at schools level and whatever else there. So I wouldn't pally enough with. And he was Czech's assistant Czech when I came to so, Leinster. So uh, I would have kept in touch with Knoxy, and but he was. You know, sort of Czechist thing. So, um, anyway, they played against Cast, and Cast put out their espoirs. Didn't even put out their second side, and they lost when it was easier to win. And I remember meeting um, Leinster support. I was going somewhere. There was around December. I might have been. I think I was going off to the states, and I remember meeting a whole load of Leinster supporters the next day. And they were absolutely ripping, like you know, you know the, the cost and expense and going to Cass and Cass is in the middle of nowhere, and you know they thought they could do something that year, and they lost against a dreadful Cass side there. And Leinster were awful, and I met hundreds of their supporters, and they just said, Jesus. So I let them have it. I, I mean, I watched the match. I let them have it. Absolutely let them have it, and. Uh, don't regret it. And I remember you, you, you rang me. I was I was in the states, and you rang me and said, "Frano, you've upset uh, you've upset everybody in Leinster." And I said, "Well, good. It might actually jump them into something there." And we had a long conversation on on the last word about it. And I was unapologetic, and I said, "No, I'll write it again, and I'll write it again. They're a disgrace." And I called them lady boys in it, and. Cheka suddenly mobilised and he realised this wasn't, this wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. So he circled the wagons and went on an offensive against me, which to a certain extent galvanised the team because, you know, this guy's a rogue, rogue writer. He played for Leinster for 14 C. He shouldn't be saying this about Leinster. But suddenly they realised that what they were producing wasn't good enough and they they went into siege mode and suddenly they managed to scrape their way through and but none of them were talking to me after this like there were you know there were guys that I was pally with on the team none of them were talking to me and fair enough and then they snuck their way through like so the bloodgate match against harlequins and then the big one in Croker. in Croker, like when everybody, I just sort of said, Munster are going to tank them, and that was a that was a turning point. And I'm not sort of, you know, it's the, the Mick Doyle, you know, I I'd, I'd, I'd like to th- thank all the players for responding positively to my <laughs> to my criticism, uh, uh, but they realised that what they were doing and their mental and, and there were a lot of things in the Leinster camp at that stage, there, you know, there were cliques there was all sorts of stuff that was wrong and they just suddenly realised that, okay, this doesn't and look at the guys down south and they have it right 
and we think we have as much, if not more, talent than them. And suddenly, you know, they get it right. us to other areas of controversy which you mm. have been involved in because I also remember having to make a phone call to you as well which I think was back around 2014 when you had gone on another radio station which we weren't happy with you about either for and you made comments about uh, how would I express this because I don't want to get either of us into trouble no, again no. Uh, but you had made comments about gay rugby players and the ballet yeah. That'd be the correct way of expressing it. Which surprised me because I do remember back in your time in the Tribune, you had been very helpful to a friend of yours who you'd played with who decided to come out and you told his story yeah, yeah. with great sensitivity at the time and great friendship. Yeah, yeah. So how do you recall what went wrong back then? No, well, nobody... I, and it's, it's up on... I think it's up online... Uh, the interview and, and Eugene McGee, God bless him, uh, you know, was, was was there with me as well. And I think Joe Malloy was, I, I think the, the charge level at me was stereotyping as opposed to any kind of homo, homophobic, and a f- you know, comment. And one of the things that uh, it, I think it was originally the topic of conversation was about Michael Sams, who was, he played for Ole Miss in, um, Michael Sams was, he was the first college player to ever come out. Okay. And he was a good player. And so he came out in college and this is just before the draft. So it presented America with a major dilemma. Are we going to pick a gay player? And only in America, like so. But the NFL, as you know, is one of those organizations there and and all their franchises there that if Adolf Hitler was able to run a 4-3, 40-yard, they'd pick him. That's just the way it is. And I, I thought, Sams was very brave in, in doing what he did because it's very difficult over there to, you know, and this was, you know, eight, eight or nine years ago, and it's still difficult. Uh, and since then, I think only two, one of the Patriots came out and one of the Raiders came out, and that's, that's been pretty much it. So uh, he didn't make it, and the reason he didn't make it was because he wasn't good enough. There, there's plenty of them in the talent, some of these sort of kids so um, so we we talked about Sam's and I just thought I thought I'd watched him play it was un- unbelievable I had watched him play three or four times and he was a pass uh, you know an edge rusher pass linebacker and he was quick enough but not good enough and that's where it pretty much should have ended but the the conversation went on a little kind of sort of further and I had, again, the spoken word sometimes is more dangerous than the written word because you don't have contemplative thought or time to think about what you're going to say. And it ventured into to ballet and hairdressing. And what I said wasn't particularly, you know, like, I mean, in, in terms, I think it was a slow, it was a slow news week and it was also, and I credit myself with being reasonably politically aware or astute of what's coming up, but the, the gay marriage referendum was coming up. And I was still a couple of years away, but no, the environment it wasn't, had no, changed. No, 
what in terms of the environment and our political discourse and what we talked about and how attitudes yeah, were, yeah. but yeah, yeah, we're still a little bit away from that. Year or two, yeah. No, I I think the referendum was on on the on that year, was okay. Was definitely it was on that year, and anybody who stuck their head above the parapet with even a you know a minor you know and so I got shot and I don't think uh, you know I, I don't think like I, and I, I, I apologize to anybody who was offended by, by what I said but I think it was a small minority of people but I did I did apologize to, to to the people who were offended. Well, I remember bringing you on the radio yeah. the following day to do so, and then we also landed Nigel Owens and talking Correct. to you just yeah. to actually make sure that you got properly schooled. Well, no, look, Nigel's a, he's a he's a good fella, uh, and we've uh, I've met him met him on the pitch. No, he didn't. He, I just met him on the pitch, and we were just chatting away. And um, anyway, I I as an act of contrition. Uh, I just said, okay, um, I'll I'll go along. So, Derry, Derry Mooney show rang me, and sort of said, would you go along to the ballet? Now, I, I ne- I'd never in the ordinary, you know, course of events, I I had tickets years ago to go to, to the ballet in, in in Covent Garden. I just no interest in going, and I went along, and I, it was it was a little bit of a hijacking, you know, and. I said, okay, look, I'll still put the sort of the hands up. And anyway, it, it, it kind of, it fizzled out, but um, it was kind of a salutary lesson in terms of, you know, what you can and can't say. Let's get to, I suppose, the difficult, sensitive bit when you effectively got cancelled last year for something which I didn't take as something that you said in any way maliciously or deliberately. It was, well, we better explain it. It was around the time of the Lions tour. You were doing a podcast for The Independent and you were discussing the English out-half Marcus Smith. So what happened? Uh, Again, just one of those kind of mad days where running around the country broke all land speed records to get home, watch the match, and then you're straight on to... Uh, this was one of the midweek games for the Midweek games, tour. yeah. And I I kind of said what I said, but it, it, it... Which we're not going to repeat. No. So... And... It's it's one of those sort of things there, and I and I, I'm genuine when when I kind of say this. Like so, in the immediate aftermath, and since then, so that was late July, early August, twenty one, around around about that time. And not, and I'm I'm pretty good at at, or I'm pretty bad at not responding to emails or texts or phone calls or whatever else there. So not. Dozens, not hundreds, but thousands of people contacted me. Rang most of them were, were, were phone calls to express their disgust about the way I was treated and you know what happened and the manner and how it happened. And um, and I, I have to say I was disappointed with the Indo. Thirty years, very disappointed. Um, but I'm thick skinned. Happened on Friday, finished up on on a Monday. No right reply uh, at that juncture, and I still haven't counted. So this is a, a kind of a first. And maybe you could say it's it's an old fashioned what I, what I did and what I said was kind of old fashioned in the sense there. It was a mistake, wasn't it? To have said what you said. Yeah, uh, how would we say it? I, and inadvertent infringement into... I, I, I disparaged the player. I would have thought maybe a yellow card offence if you yeah, were going to use absolutely. 10 yeah. minutes in the sin bin maybe, yeah, 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 but yeah. not necessarily suddenly you're fired. So, yeah, to explain 
the way I was thinking was that, you know, and everybody, everybody, you know, come up to me and come up to the street or wherever, or, you know, in places of business or people I see in business. And they sort of, and they forget the name of the guy that I was making the comparison with. But basically, you know, it, I, I compared, and this was the disparagement that I compared Marcus Smith to Gavin Henson. And Gavin Henson, again, another talented player, but, and I never played with him, but talked to players who played with him, and a unique individual, and would have spent hours in the baths, shaving his legs, putting on moisturizer, putting on, you know, fake tan, getting his hair done, making sure his face was properly moisturized, and that's anathema to an awful lot of rugby players. Like, and if he wants to do it, that that's fine. And it's a generational thing. No, I don't think it is. I think it's an individual. Say, I don't. I don't think any of the players get involved in, in in that sort of stuff. So, he was brought on Alliance tour in two thousand and five, and in the second test against New Zealand. It was a media selection. He was picked at, at, at... It was a marketing ploy. Yeah, it was. And he should never have been... And they got absolutely pummeled in the second test. And he was a disaster. And, and then there were special photographs organised before the third test when he was being dropped, yeah. you might remember. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he, he wasn't good enough, shouldn't have been picked, and... He wasn't a particularly well liked within the in that squad, but I mean it was it was not a good tour from every perspective. And Marcus Smith was picked, uh, and I'd watched him play a couple of times for Harlequins, and Harlequins had done well that that year. But he should never, as a player, have been brought on that Lions tour ahead of Johnny Sexton. No, no, and again the media were clamouring for, you know, look. And you can never translate premiership, you know, like, I mean, you look at it now, you know, the premiership, you know, and where are they? There, you know, there's no premiership clubs and, you know, in the last, in, in, the, in the business. It was one in the quarterfinals of the Champions yeah. Cup, that's and, it. And they got wiped. So you can never translate premiership form to certainly playing in a, a third test against the Springboks at home. And... They were looking to pick him, and I just said, you, you can't pick this guy. He's a very talented player, and he will get better. Uh, but you just couldn't put him in there. And basically what I was saying was, look, this could be another Gavin Henson. You pick him, and he, the, the kid could fold, and you'd be certain that the, the Springboks would target him. He's a small guy. He has great skill, great ability, but it might overwhelm him. And that was the, the basic joint or point of of what I was trying to say. Did I say it correctly? No, I didn't. Did I make a mistake? Probably. Did I disparage him? I did, but not in the way that a number of people thought that I disparaged him. And most of my constituency, the rugby following percentage of this of this country, knew exactly what I was trying to say. And a tiny percentage of nameless, faceless people on Twitter interpreted it another way. And, and unfortunately, that's... And, and it, it kind of grew legs. And I was, uh, was cancelled. And I was... Uh, like I say, I'm, I'm, I'm thick-skinned. I was disappointed that the, that the, uh, the Indo didn't stick to their guns. I apologised. And we talked about it in a number of ways. You said, like you said, it's a yellow card offence. And uh, look, lads, this is, you know, it's the end of the season. There's one match to go. Suspend the column for a couple of months and you slap, slap on the hand and we're back in September, October. And anyway, they just, they came back to me uh, on lunchtime on Friday and just said, right, your, um, your contract's up in September and we're not going to renew it okay fair enough but a number of things 
sort of came about. One was that the following week they approached me and said, we want you back. And then the Sunday Times were in and they said, we want you. And then a number of left field oddball stuff, a couple, I won't say who it was, one wealthy individual just sort of said, okay, I'm going to finance you. We don't need, we don't need advertising, whatever else there, and we're going to do frano.com. Just write a piece or two pieces a week and we'll pay you. And one or two other oddball sort of things there. So, Which obviously you didn't go for. No. Well, I knew, you know, I, I said I knew the Sunday Times were very keen to have me and I knew that the Indo were keen to have me back. So I, I just think it's, you know, and, I, and if you want to take it a stage further, like I, I think where we are with this particular culture is there have we reached a, a kind of a tipping point at, at, the, at this stage so McCarthyism lasted for about four or five years and I think the vast majority of people in this country have exhausted their patience with what this culture is, is kind of doing. So high 90s, I, I would suspect, of people that would sort of say, look, the world has gone crazy. It has gone crazy. So far cleverer people than me have, have been able to, um, you know, talk about it and write about it, you know, how it's come about, where it's come from, where it's going to. But how did you feel? in the aftermath of it all and knowing that you were the centre I mean it it was more the British media that made an issue of it to an extent than the Irish media until such stage as you were cancelled by the Independent and lots of people in rugby were coming out and talking about it so what is it like to go through that experience of knowing that you have been cancelled <laughs> see I'm not on Twitter I have no social media so I, I don't know, I don't know, and I don't care what they were saying about me. Um, one or two, one or two people overstepped the mark, and we'll see. I'm not, I'm not litigious, but it's very hard to prove that you're a racist, particularly when you're not a racist. And some of those people that made those allegations and those comments are on thin ice like I said I'm not I'm not litigious um, I you know I, I miss the storm because I'm not on I'm not on Twitter and Friday night I went out for dinner with friends Saturday night went out for dinner with friends Sunday I went down to see my mother Monday it was all over and then the the whole process of sort of saying okay look, we want him, or we want him back, began pretty much straight away. And I said, look, do you know what? And I, I like, the, in terms of, of income, it's only a small percentage of, of, of what I do, but because I enjoy writing, you know, would I, would I write again? So I took, I took time out from, say, September to Christmas, and then I decided, okay, I enjoy writing. I'm pretty good at it. And I have a, a pretty strong following. And everybody's sort of saying, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? And so it, it, it didn't bother me that much. But for people who don't get the opportunity to come back, you know, so the people, people's interpretations of what you say, uh, and then you lose your job. As, as a result of it. So, I prepared something here. <laughs> a written statement? Not a, no, not a written statement. No, 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 no. So something, something it's, it's where it goes from here. And like, like I was sort of saying, you, you, you can't, um, you know, 
you you can't get into a a, a situation where um, you know you just keep on commenting about cancel culture, cancel and and sort of where it's going. So here is Article Forty, Paragraph Six of Bunrockneheran. Just read it quickly. The state guarantees liberty for the exercise of the following rights subject to public order and morality. The right of citizens to express freely their convictions and opinions. The education of public opinion being, however, a matter of such grave import to the common good. The state shall endeavour to ensure that organs of public opinion, such as the radio, the press, the cinema, while preserving their rightful liberty of expression, including criticism of government policy, shall not be used to undermine public order or morality of the authority of the state. So it's a fundamental right enshrined in the Constitution. And what cancel culture here and, in the, and the same, the Americans have the same, the Brits have the same, all around Western Europe there, you have a fundamental right to freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And cancel culture flies directly in that. Uh, in, in that right. So how do we stop it? How do we lessen its influence? Uh, I think there's a, it could be, the 39th Amendment is due up shortly, is it? You'd know this. I don't. Yeah, 30, there's a 39th Amendment proposed. And while we're at it, why don't we just sort of say, okay, let's have the citizens of this country decide, have a plebiscite, or a secondary motion there about our freedom of speech and the you know the damage that cancel culture is doing and the fact that people who uh, express an opinion are no longer allowed to express an opinion uh, because they lose their job. And you're back now and you have your new position with the Sunday Times and you're getting the chance to write again. Neil Francis, I very much appreciate you taking the time to join me here for Magnified with Matt Cooper. Hope you enjoy Leinster in the Champions Cup final. Thanks for joining us. Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul.